taking a road trip to the north coast of California puts you through some unforgettable scenery. You can even go forced bathing in your car. The sinuous, sweeping, one-lane road through the avenue of the giants of the redwood forests. Absolutely sensational experience. Coming up, we get tips for great road trips into the California countryside. Get a taste of the Old West at a rodeo. If you go to a rodeo, you won't forget it. You may not love it. You may have some strange memories of it or something, but you won't forget it. We'll look at the world of rodeo cowboys and the legends of the classic saddle bronc competition, just like you see pictured on the Wyoming license plate. And what do you think of when you see a bald eagle soar across the sky? 10, 15 years ago, uh, we didn't see very many bald eagles, but now we're seeing them all the time. The population has rebounded. Hear what a remarkable journey the species has taken. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how one pioneer family hangs on to a vestige of the Old West by working the rodeo circuit. We'll get inspired to explore the best of California on a road trip beyond the big cities and hear what the American bald eagle has had to endure as a national symbol that's had to dodge extinction twice in the last century. A backdrop of sandstone mountains painted shades of orange, yellow, and red where cattle lined the bluffs and tourists climb the canyon walls. This is where the Wright family spends their time breaking cattle and carrying on the traditional American cowboy ways. Journalist John Branch spent time with Utah's fabled Saddle Bronc Rodeo family following the challenges tied to holding on to the dwindling cowboy lifestyle. He joins us now to detail the trials and tribulations of the Wrights, a name that's won championships and worked the land outside Zion National Park for over a century. John, thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Rick. So I want to talk about the Wrights in a minute, this family that is sort of synonymous with rodeos. But let's talk about rodeos first. In a way, it's kind of the original Wild West pastime. Talk a bit how the rodeo represents cowboy culture as a, as a real cultural force. Yeah, sure. That goes back to, what, the late 1800s, you know, Buffalo Bill days of, um, of these contests that would take place of roping and riding and trying to jump on the back of a, of a saddle bronc. And that part of um, that culture has stuck with us in sometimes sentimental ways, the way that old Western movies do. You know, the, the world has moved on, but these rodeos are kind of stuck in the past as sort of an emblem of what is moving away and what is leaving them behind. And uh, yeah, they've been going on for 130 years. And people sometimes are surprised to know that there are still seven, eight hundred, nine hundred rodeos a year in the United States. Uh, unless you live in a small town, you may not realize that or may not realize that there's more than just the one that you know about that right. your Lions Club puts on or something. But they're, they're all over the place if you're looking for them. Now, on the cover of your book, The Last Cowboys, A Pioneer Family in the New West, there's a silhouette of a cowboy on a bucking bronco. And it just seems like this saddle bronc, that's, that's sort of like the pinnacle of all this rodeo activity. There, there's lots of other activities, but why, why is the saddle bronc, why is this eight seconds on a bucking bronco the big deal? Yeah, so saddle bronc is kind of the classic rodeo event. It's the one that's pictured on the Wyoming license plate, um, mm -hmm. that silhouette. It's the one where real cowboys say, well, we all know what it's like to try to saddle a horse and try to control it. That's what we do on the farm or on the ranch all the time. Mm -hmm. We would never get on a horse without a saddle, and we would certainly never get on a bull. Those seem to be a little bit crazy, but to hardcore, longtime cowboys, saddle bronc is a classic event. 
and these Broncos are are bred to throw the throw the person riding them off. Yeah, it's not unlike uh, racehorses, right? They're 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 bred, and he will hand down from generation to generation. Uh, you'll sort of see the same names come through generation after generation of these of these famous bucking horses. And if you've never really watched it, you know, go to YouTube and and search for it, Saddle Bronc. I mean, it's amazing. You call it uh, like being in an eight second car accident. Yeah, I have no urge to do this. And when you see it up close and personally, um, you realize what they are going through is crazy. I, I spent a lot of time around a lot of sports, and that's one that I have spent a lot of time close up, and I still would not do it. And you look at the the cowboy in the before they turn the, the Bronco loose, and he's there. He knows he's in for, for hell on a saddle in just a moment, and then they open that gate. And they open that gate, and they don't know what's going to happen. And it's amazing because they travel long ways. They do a, they do an eight-second ride if they're lucky. They do an eight-second ride after 24 hours or 48 hours of traveling to get to this one place, to this one rodeo in this one small town, and here's your chance, and you have eight seconds. And um, if you get bucked off, you get $0, and maybe you get hurt. If you stay on, you have a chance to be in the money. Now, you've traveled quite a bit to write your book, The Last Cowboys. From a traveler's point of view... What would you advise if somebody wants to dip into that culture? Where would we go and how would we do it best? Yeah. So if you live in the Western U.S., I think it's pretty easy. You probably have a rodeo that comes once a year to someplace not too far from you. And uh-huh. that could be a tiny town like Stonyford, California or Springville, right. California. Uh, if you live in Oregon or, or Northwest, get yourself to Pendleton when the Pendleton Rodeo comes along. Where have you enjoyed it? I, th- I love places like Clovis, California. I used to work in Fresno, and Clovis has a nice rodeo. Colorado Springs has the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo. Um, and the National Finals Rodeo, which is where the Super Bowl of Rodeo in Las Vegas in December, 10 nights of a sold-out arena, 17,000 people. It's, wow. it's, it's crazy. And to watch the cowboy culture take over Las Vegas and take over the casinos, it's this wonderful culture clash. If you have a chance to be in Las Vegas in December during the National Finals Rodeo... This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with New York Times sports journalist John Branch, and he's taken us inside the world of one family of saddle bronc riders, the Wrights, with his book, The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West. He's also the author of Side Country, Tales of Death and Life from the Back Roads of Sports. Now, you're telling the story by getting to know a family, and it's a family that dominates rodeo. I, I just can't believe these guys, the Wrights. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of wannabe cowboys, uh, but these guys are the real deal. What is it about the rights? Well, there's. It, it took a family of 13 kids, seven boys, and all the boys, thanks to the dad, sort of got into rodeo back 10, 20 years ago. Um, and then these boys started having more boys. So now you have two generations of rights that are dominating saddle bronc. You know, four or five of the best saddle bronc riders of any of the past 10 or 12 years are rights. You know, it'd be like the Manning brothers. If you had five or six Manning brothers that were all winning Super Bowls, um, yeah. they, they're dominating that that particular event. And huh. um, they're all sort of built the same. They're all sort of built like five, eight, pretty thin, but muscular kind of uh, wiry. And apparently a wonderful sense of balance and uh, a lack of fear. It's a team sport. You you wrote about how it, it looks like a solo sport, but there's really some team action going on there. Yeah, you don't realize this when you're driving around the West on vacation in the summer, but you, I can now spot the rodeo trucks. And inside each of those trucks will be a, is a camper with usually four cowboys in it. And those guys are sharing rides back and forth to rodeos all around the West. And so you're usually moving in, in packs of yeah. four cowboys. And those guys are all helping each other with the saddles, helping each other with advice, whatever. And it's grueling. When they're on the road, they can do three rodeos in one weekend. 
Yeah, these guys are putting, a lot of them are putting 100,000 miles in their trucks each year. What's the financial uh, payoff? Well, if you're among the best, you might make a half a million dollars. That'd be the very top half million mm-hmm. dollars in earnings every year. But of course, that costs a lot of money for that truck and the tires and the gas and all that. And um, medical bills. And medical bills. You, you hope to have a spouse with a good medical plan. Oh, my goodness. Now, when you would think about this culture, this cowboy culture, you know, it's, it's rituals that keep a culture strong in so many ways. And there are cowboy rituals. Uh, you wrote about how they start and they end the season with the ritual of the branding day. What is that and why it's important? Yeah, so the rights, like a lot of families, um, they raise cattle. That's their, that's their bread and butter is, is the cattle business. And they have a small herd outside of Zion National Park in southern Utah. And every year when the, uh, the calves are born, after they're a few months old, they bring the family together and they spend the weekend there gathering the herd from hundreds of acres. And they bring them all together and corral them and then brand the young ones. New York Times sports journalist John Branch is bringing us a modern look at the old American West on Travel with Rick Steves. His book about the first family of saddle bronc riders, the rights of southern Utah, is called The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West. John posts frequently to Twitter. You're writing about the rights, the right family in this book. They're a business. They have a big ranch. They own 1,200 acres of land and uh, lease a lot more than that from the government. Part of the book's plot is just the family struggling to stay in business. You have one quote that that sort of indicates that they've got to get with the modern world and monetize things. Uh, The quote is, if the modern world is closing in on our ranch, maybe it's time to take advantage of the modern world instead of running from it. Maybe the past really was the answer to the future. So what does that mean, that they're just going to start becoming a tourist attraction? Yeah. I mean, for most of 150 years, they were on their own. They're, nobody was around. They, they loved having this land and nobody around them to bother them. And as tourism has crept into Zion and that area around what they call Hurricane um, in southern Utah, more and more people are coming. And that land is getting to be so valuable that it doesn't make a lot of sense to run cattle on it anymore. And so huh. the rights are really in this weird dilemma where it's become expensive enough that maybe they should move out, but they've also been there for 150 years. So maybe what they're trying to wrestle with is maybe we let these tourists in and welcome them in. And maybe we start doing a dude ranch or start doing our own little rodeos and trying oh. to figure out how we can blend these two things together. kind of sad. Don't you think it's kind of sad? It's sad. I mean, it, it presents some opportunity, um, but I think if they had their druthers, they would rather just go back to the past. It seems like it's a metaphor for the American cowboy culture. People who live in the city, they don't probably think too much about cowboy culture, but it's an honest goodness slice or thread in the fabric of our greater society, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we talk about flyover country. A lot of these people are in what we call flyover country. I think a lot of these people are weary and leery of being dismissed as they don't matter, that what their their beliefs are don't matter, where they live don't matter. And, And I've learned, you know, you and I fly around a lot. I look down now when I fly and look down in those nooks and crannies and think there are ranchers down there. There's cattle herds down there. There are people who are trying to earn an honest living down there and, and they shouldn't be forgotten. Let's tell their stories. Well, and that's a beautiful thing that you do with your book. What advice can you give us to just gain an appreciation of what some might call flyover country? Not just seeing rodeos, but how can we recognize and celebrate this dimension of the United States of America? I mean, just get out. Get out of your chair. Get out out of your living room and just explore. Um, There's, you know, I I have the great privilege of being able to jump in my car or sometimes jump in a plane and go see 
cultures that I know very little about and I get paid to do it. But in my free time, I try to do the same thing with my family. And that is just, let's go someplace that takes us a little bit out of our comfort zone mm -hmm. to meet people that maybe we wouldn't meet otherwise. You have to kind of go out of your way sometimes to do that. And I would egg people on to, to go do that because the lessons are invaluable. And the mark of a good experience in that regard is how many people are you going to meet? You're not going to see earth-shaking sights necessarily, but you're going to have precious memories that are created by being extrovert enough and bold enough to meet people and to recognize they'd love to talk, they'd love to share, they're proud of their, their culture, and let's get to know it. Absolutely. And if you're one of those people who's never been to a rodeo, I guarantee if you go to a rodeo, you won't forget it. You may not love it. <laughs> you may have some strange memories of it or something, but you won't forget it. And that's what I think life should be about. I'm going to do that. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to wear a cowboy hat. There you go. You're all hat, no cattle, as they say. <laughs> all hat and no cattle. John Branch, thanks for writing The Last Cowboys, a pioneer family in the New West, and best wishes with, with your travel writing and your sports writing. My thanks to you, Rick. We also have links to John's latest book, Side Country, with profiles of athletes facing life-and-death challenges. It's with this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll hear about the improbable journey of the American bald eagle after a little side trip around California, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Christopher P. Baker has been writing about travel since 1992. He's authored more than 30 guidebooks and was even named Travel Journalist of the Year by the Society of American Travel Writers. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves from his home base in Palm Springs to tell us about his latest project. It's a guide to making the most of a day in California, featuring his favorite 29 destinations. His book is called Perfect Day California, Daily Itineraries for the Discerning Traveler. Chris, great to have you back. How are you doing? It's tremendous to be with you again, Rick. We've talked uh, several times. Re remind me all the different topics we've talked about before. Oh, gosh. Well, my favorite destination, of course, Cuba. We've talked about that several times. Uh -huh. Costa Rica and uh, one of my uh, fun and favorite activities, of course, motorcycling. Oh, yes. And uh, you could certainly enjoy motorcycling around California. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, with uh, uh, with your book in your in your bag there. Yes, much of the research was done by motorcycle. I bet. Now, California has a world of scenic wonders and historic sites and fun experiences. Um, this is a pretty pretty short book, actually. How did you sort through it? You, you distilled it down, really. You got it's eight hundred miles from north to south. You chose the best twenty nine destinations for you. How'd you do that? Well, obviously, many of them are must haves. Los Angeles, Santa Monica, San Francisco, etc. But I also honed in on some of the uh, lesser destinations that don't get that much play, which I felt deserved it. Um, uh -huh. Everything from obviously gold country, but up in the north, Eureka, Redding, places a little more distant from the population centers, uh, but which deserve being exposed. And you get on that freeway and, and you can you can get there, actually. Uh, maybe not a convenient day trip from L.A. or San Francisco, but but uh, within striking distance, most of the book, it seems, is reasonable as a day trip from L.A. or San Francisco. And I would think that's the real practical thing. When a lot of us go to San Francisco or L.A. and we're there for an event or a conference or, or something, and we have a free day. It seems like the book is just made to order for that. That's absolutely right. Just very quickly, what, what are the top four or five days you could have if you had a free day in San Francisco that you cover? 
Well, I, I focus on, firstly, two destinations that I think are the prime destinations everybody should do. So you've got Golden Gate Park, uh -huh. a fabulous venue with De Young Art Museum, uh, California Academy of Sciences in there. Mm -hmm. Tremendous option that would fill at least half a day. Then you have the waterfront walk, the classic waterfront walk, uh, taking in Pier 39 and some of the other venues that are less known, but which I explain. And in fact, you could opt to add, let's say, a ferry ride to Angel Island from there. So then I offer maybe four or five for every of the destinations, four or five alternate venues that are kind of mix and match options to fill a full day in the destination. Let's say I've got a car and I, I want to have something, I want to get out of the city. What what would get me definitively out of the city, but but handy for a day? Well, you wouldn't need to go far from San Francisco. You could do uh, Sausalito in the Mar Marin Headlands, uh, uh -huh. for example, Muir Woods. You could go a little further across Napa Valley and Sonoma Valley, both known for their uh, as wine destinations, are well within easy reach of San Francisco. You could certainly be there within ninety minutes and uh, yeah. an early start in the morning, and uh, you could take in the wine country and be back in the city for the evening. And you do the same thing in your book with uh, Los Angeles. I was impressed by how worthwhile it is to take that short drive up to Santa Barbara. For sure. You know, I've been surprised how often I come across people who've been living um, not just in Southern California, where I live right now, but any other destination, and they have not explored close by their backyards. You know, they focus yeah. on destinations <laughs> far afield. Uh, and I recently met somebody who said, you know, I've never been to Santa Barbara and she lives in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, how is this possible? So here's what you do if you want to make a day trip. And of course, in these times of pandemic, it's absolutely perfect yeah. for day tripping uh, and coming back home that same day or maybe one overnight. I love how you called it the American San Tropez. <laughs> yeah. It's a pretty good description. The Riviera, yeah. It, it promotes itself as the mm. Riviera, so why not? Now, I was very impressed when I was in San Diego of just going to La Jolla. And uh, you've got a beautiful chapter on La Jolla. Give us a rundown on, on, on how you could have a great day if you're doing some work or whatever in San Diego, but just a couple of miles north to La Jolla. Yeah, sure. I mean, La Jolla is a very upscale coastal destination with some of the prime coastal vistas in California, not least some of the prime real estate, too. But it's full of wonderful things to do. And because it's uh, located on the coast, obviously, I've given it a coastal focus. Sure, culture vultures can find plenty to uh, entertain them in the Museum of Contemporary Art. But for me, the quintessential experience is walking the coast walk trail, uh, maybe going tide pooling, especially if you have kids. And also you've got the Birch Aquarium of uh, at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. So yeah. lots, lots to focus on in a mar maritime way. You know, I was uh, a little disappointed you didn't include Tijuana as a day trip. <laughs> I guess technically, it's, oh, well, not technically, it's just not in California. But when you're in San Diego... You can't get more thrills for a day than just crossing the border and checking out. Well, that, that's true. But, uh, you know, in San Diego, you're spoiled for choice. So um, I had to be very selective. And uh, maybe Tijuana would have been the next destination that I wanted to include, but just didn't have the space. For there you go. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Chris Baker. Chris has written about 30 guidebooks, and his latest book is called Perfect Day California. Chris recommends 29 different one-day itineraries for fun and scenic variety in the Golden State. His website is ChristopherPBaker.com. So, Chris, I want to kind of get out of the big city, out of the shadow of the big cities. You mentioned earlier uh, destinations like Gold Country, uh, you know, near Sacramento, Mendocino, Eureka. 
Uh, let's talk about those places for just a minute. Uh, if you're considering going up to gold country, it's really exciting that the history you've got in California. I'm kind of spoiled in Europe, you know, when you see all the history and art over there, but there's a lot of history in California, and, and uh, gold country is a good place to sample that. For sure. Um, and that was one of the more difficult chapters for me to write because um, it cov- covers a long distance. So when I say it, it's uh, Highway 49, of course. So I had to really concentrate on the central area where there is enough in terms of historical venues and natural venues really to fill a day. And some of those include the Columbia State Historic Park, which is the most concentrated of the um, gold country destinations. It's really a living museum with docents dressed in uh, period costume, etc. You can take a stagecoach ride. You can go mining for gold and drink your sarsaparilla soda. There you go. If you're traveling with kids, you've got lots to do there. You've got, that was Columbia State Historic Park, right? Correct. Ride a stagecoach, drink some sarsaparilla. There's another place where you can ride a steam train, an old steam train. Um, That's Railroad uh, 1897 State Historic Park down in Jamestown. All right. And uh, so history buffs would enjoy that. Also, I like the thought that, like in, in, I guess you wrote, the only coastal town designated as a historic preserved site, Mendocino. Sounds lovely. I've never been there. Oh, you've never been to Mendocino? No. This is a little beyond reach for a one-day trip from San Francisco. It's a place you'd probably opt for to overnight. This kind of New England-style village on its peninsula is very lonesome, uh, but it has an absolutely fantastic uh, setting there, surrounded atop the cliffs by fantastic coastal vistas. Uh, I'm just walking around the, the town itself, little little town full of clapboard houses, is reward in itself, although there are specific venues around Mendocino that you would probably want to add to a day just walking around the old uh, hilltop town. Now, there's something called a pygmy forest. What is a pygmy forest? Well, um, this is in Van Damme State Park, and you have various ecosystems there. And a, a pygmy forest is a specific vegetation type of trees that are almost bonsai, and ah, they're a result okay. of cold, mist, little sun that stunt the growth of the forest. And it has a, a, its own peculiarity. And walking amidst, amongst them is shrouded forest is a fabulous experience. Um, rhododendrons growing wild there ah. amongst the pygmy forest. You know, there's so much nature. There's so much history. There's so much also potential for tourism, which does turn a lot of places into kind of like they can get kind of kitschy. But you've worked to try to steer people around that. Uh, it seems like Eureka would be a, a breath of fresh air in a lot of ways, um, worth checking out. Oh, absolutely. And not least because it's the furthest north of the cities in California, right there on the coast. Yeah. So because of its distance from the main main cities, it doesn't get as much visitation as other places. But it retains its historic feel as a, a lumbering and old fishing center. Uh, of course, lumbering for the Redwoods and, of course, nearby, we have to mention it, is the Avenue of the Giants. Uh, And if I have a top experience that I enjoyed motorcycling uh, throughout California, it is the ride, the sinuous, sweeping one-lane road through the Avenue of the Giants of the Redwood Forests. Absolutely sensational I can imagine. I I don't ride a motorcycle, but I'd love to be in the back of yours and just kind of arcing (laughs) through there, huh? 
Well, I usually only take women on the back of my motorcycle, oh, Rick. But come on. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it in the car. We'll do it oh, in the car. Okay, in the car. That's good. Okay. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker. His book is Perfect Day, California, and it's highlighting the 29 best day plans you could have while visiting California, most of them within easy striking distance of Los Angeles or San Francisco. You know, Chris, when, when we travel, I know this when I'm helping people travel around Europe, a lot of times there's redundancy, you know. How many Madonnas and children are you going to see? How many hill towns are you going to climb to check out? How many cathedrals are you going to see? And you need to sort through that. Do you, are you going to see Oxford and Cambridge? No, see one or the other because you want to make up time for something entirely different. How do you deal with that in California? Because you do have a lot of choices. you got a lot of beaches. you got a lot of historic missions. you got a lot of scenic drives. you got a lot of wineries. Did you think about that as you were putting this together, this book? Oh, absolutely. I, I think you answered it there in your own question because um, there is so much diversity. So, yes, I did absolutely focus on the need to cater to all tastes, as it were. Yeah. Uh, but throughout, the one common denominator is my desire to focus on what would I personally like to experience combined diversity, but the top venues. And then what are the secondary things that would really appeal maybe to more specific interests? Yeah. So getting back to this redundancy thing, Chris, um, just in a very unapologetic, blitz kind of way, I'm going to ask you, if you're going to sort through all these things, what would be your favorite beach, your favorite historic mission, your favorite scenic drive, and your favorite winery? Okay. Oh let's say God. you. I let's. Wish, I wish you'd prepared me for no, that. No, no. Okay, so you don't. You don't. No, you don't have to be exactly right, but just blurt out. If you're going to do one beach, what's your favorite beach? Oh gosh, I love Stinson Beach because I've got fun memories when I lived up in the Bay Area. Stinson Beach. Uh, Stinson Beach is in the book. Okay. So it would be an option from Sausalito. You have a chapter on Sausalito because it combines getting to Stinson Beach north of Sausalito on the Pacific coast. So that's a coast that's not on the bay, it's on the coast and it's north it's of the, the Golden coast, Gate Bridge. Yeah. It involves a beautiful drive that uh -huh. is perfect to combine with Muir Woods. Oh, good. Up over the coastal mountains, a scenic drive. If you love driving as I do, it's a fabulous experience. You drop down to uh, Stinson Beach, which is several miles long. Very popular for fishing, but also you can uh, just walk that beach you know, two or three miles, and yes. it ends at Bolinas Lagoon with uh, fabulous birding, etc. Nice. You may be lucky enough to see whales offshore. So. All right. Historic mission. Historic mission. Well, we have 21 missions, of course. Um, probably the Santa Barbara mission because it is still an active mission. Ah. Uh, you still have monks there, and it is one probably the most best preserved of the missions. And wow. so... Um, in my book, it is one of the two major profile destinations for Santa Barbara. And it gives you a good excuse to make that effort to go to Santa Barbara from Los Angeles. And do the monks welcome you there? Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, for the most part, they're hidden away. Um, yeah. You know, you've got the, the touristy venue side of, of it right. and then the more reserved, peaceful. All right. A great place if you're on a motorcycle. Uh, you've already said the Redwood Forest. Um, another one other than the Redwood Forest. <laughs> Oh, you know, I would probably add uh, a destination that uh, I couldn't even put in the book because I wish, I really wished it was 30 destinations ju right. just because the page count uh, is right. not there, and that is the Owens Valley. But let's deal with what is in the book. Well, most of these destinations are actually not focused on drives per se. Oh, I know, Lassen Volcano National Park. Oh. 
that would be a four-day loop drive around the volcano out of Reading,、nice. and that is the sensational experience. Not just for anybody who wants that kind of geological one hundred and one, yeah, with stops, but it, it is a scenic highlight. Is it a like a, a nicely paved? Small road, like a two-lane road or a one-lane road, it, and that's exactly right. Of course,、yeah. it's a national park highway.、Yeah. It, it's well maintained,、nice. and it's beautiful. It would be the equivalent, maybe, of doing、um, Crater Lake up in Oregon. Ah, Crater Lake, I've done that, and I've also there's like a long driveway. There's like a ten mile long. It feels like you're on some rich person's driveway. You know, it's just almost one lane, and it's just perfectly smooth, and it goes all around the volcano in Sicily, Mount Etna. And yeah,、uh, when you yeah, talk well, about Lassen, that, but, it'd be、um, something. It'd be something I like that. I can imagine so, it's similar. Yeah. All right. And then、uh, we can't go to all the wineries. What's your favorite winery experience?、Um, there's no doubt about it. It's highlighted in the book, and that is the Hess Collection in Napa Valley. The which collection? Hess. H E S S. H E S. The Hess Collection is the name of the winery. All right.、Uh, the wines are obviously Hess.、Uh, that is the name of the owner of the winery, but. It is remarkable because、uh, it is in a 1903 historic building, but it also has one of the best private art galleries in the world, and certainly within California, an outstanding museum of contemporary art inside the winery. You can be sipping your wine as you wander through the gallery. I don't think that is actually permitted. Oh, but,、uh, that! <laughs> you would separate the two out. You would take、okay. in whichever you wish to do first.、Okay. You'd take, you'd have your wine sampling, and then you'd、uh, take the winery tour and/or、uh, do the art museum. There you go. One of the most rewarding states in the union for an enjoyable road trip has just got to be California, if you can budget for the high price of gas. Christopher P. Baker's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves to offer ideas for day trips from the big cities and other routes that might take a few days. Chris highlights the variety of the Golden State in his book Perfect Day California with daily itineraries for the discerning traveler. Chris's website includes links to his articles, books, and tours he's leading in Cuba and Colombia. That's at ChristopherPBaker.com. Christopher, your book has been so much fun to read through, and I noticed in every destination you've got a favorite restaurant. Let's just say I was going to ask you to take me out to dinner tonight, and you wanted to give me a, an experience that would make me want to come back to California again and again and again. Ooh, good question. Well,、um, I've got a whole range of restaurants here. Some of them are really upscale, well-known venues that. For example, in Los Angeles, but I think I'd probably. I like for, funky、uh, places, kind of family-run, yeah, where yeah, I feel the the pulse of the the, the sure, community and the、I'm, culture. That's、yeah. what I'm going to take you to, and that's Lola's Mexican Cuisine in Long Beach.、Uh, this is a real,、um, it's iconic for Mexican real real grandmothers cooking, and、uh, yeah. in fact, the owner、uh, states quite frankly that he learned much of his techniques and recipes from his grandmother. Okay, this is so this Long is, Beach, this, and what's the name again? Long Beach. It's called Lola's Mexican Cuisine. Oh, Lola. Okay, Lola. great.、Yeah. I'll see you there. What time? <laughs> <laughs> Can we do tomorrow? Tomorrow. All right.、Yeah. Christopher Baker. Congratulations on this book, Perfect Day California, and I'm sure that'll bring a lot of people a lot of travel joy. Happy travels. Thank you. It nearly went extinct twice in the 20th century. Professor Jack E. Davis has just written an expansive cultural and natural history on the American bald eagle, and how its changing fortunes amplify the nation's history. It's a conservation success story that we can all be proud of. The improbable journey of the bald eagle. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. 
Mina Soraya, we come from Suriname, and I reis with Rick Steves. I'm Soraya from Suriname, and that was Surinamese for I Travel with Rick Steves. Mina Soraya, and I reis with Rick Steves. Thank you. Grand tangi. Bon day. No other bird in American history has been the object of so much admiration and cruelty as the bald eagle. As historian Jack E. Davis sees it, the national symbol that came close to extinction twice in the 20th century demonstrates our country's tenuous relationship with the natural world. And the eagle's fortitude speaks to our hopes for the future. Jack Davis has written a cultural and natural history called The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves from the studios of WUFT at the University of Florida, where he teaches history and humanities. Jack, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for uh, being with us, and thanks for um, giving Americans an opportunity to get to know our bird a little better. You know, after reading through your book, it just occurred to me, the eagle is like, it's everywhere. It's on the Capitol Dome. It's on military insignias. It's on top of flagpoles. It's, It's on tattoos. Uh, it's like the star of the great seal of the USA. What is it about this bird? Well, I think, of course, the image is everywhere, and the, 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 the living species wasn't always that way, which we can talk about in a minute. But the eagle conveys uh, attributes that we associate with the United States, strength and, and courage and, and, and freedom. It's a handsome bird, and it's also highly recognizable, or at least adults are, with their white heads and their white tails and their, their dark bodies. Is it kind of the way we want to see ourselves? Is this one bird that, that we think, you know, in our own pride represents us well? I think so. Uh, I think that's part of it. Uh, eagles, of course, have been uh, on uh, nation-state insignia dating back to the ancient Romans and, and the Greeks. But the eagles that were part of that heraldry tended to be non-ornithological. They, weren't, they didn't represent any particular species. Uh, the, the bald eagle is the first one that's identifiable as a, as a species, and it's an appropriate one because the bald eagle lives only in North America. So it's truly an all-American bird. So, I mean, it's not that clear. I mean, you know, I think of an eagle as a noble uh, raptor, but uh, settlers, farmers, they kind of scorned them for a while, according to your book. They did score them for quite a while when um, the Continental Congress adopted the Great Seal of the United States in 1782. The image of the bald eagle on the front of the seal became hugely popular, um, huh. but the species itself was not. It's a top predator, and it was treated like uh, other predators such as uh, mountain lions and coyotes and, and, and wolves and bears. And so an eagle scene was an eagle to be shot to yeah. protect uh, livestock or backyard chickens, for that matter. You wrote how Ben Franklin actually liked the wild turkey better. Uh, if we can trust Ben Franklin. Uh, but he did write in a letter to his daughter comparing the, quote-unquote, morality of the wild turkey with the, the bald eagle. He referred to the wild turkey as an industrious, uh, uh, courageous bird, and the, the bald eagle is a rank coward and thief. So what was the, um, I mean, we talked about it going back to ancient Roman times and so on, but here in our hemisphere, what about Native Americans? I assume eagles were around before uh, white settlers. Yes, the best we can tell is that bald eagles have been around for a million years. At least fossil evidence of today indicates that. For many Native peoples, uh, bald eagles were and are spirit bird dating back thousands of years. You know, the messengers between 
earth and uh, lost ancestors and the the creator. So the eagle's uh, feathers and, and body parts have long been used in in religious ceremonies of, of many Native groups. So did that make the the eagle hunted, actually, by Native Americans for their need for eagle feathers for their spiritual rituals? Yes, they did. They did hunt eagles. They did not hunt them in excess. Um, they took what they needed. Generally, there was elaborate ceremony around the hunting of an eagle and, and taking it from the wild and a designated eagle catcher or, or killer. Yeah, I think you've even got a photograph in your book of, a, of an eagle catcher, and it's a uh, it just occurred to me, wow, somebody had the role of being an eagle catcher because they needed that to feather their their rituals. That's exactly right. No native group is identical to another native group, and so they had their, their separate rituals. Some native people, such as the Zuni, didn't, didn't kill eagles, but they would take eaglets out of a nest. As long as there were, were at least two eaglets in a nest, they would only take one. And they would raise that eagle in a stockade, and they would pluck its feathers, but they wouldn't kill it. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're getting a closer look at America through its relationship with the natural world with historian Jack E. Davis. Jack's written The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird, to explain the plight of the bald eagle in the USA and its role in how America sees itself. Jack teaches at the University of Florida and writes about the importance of the Gulf of Mexico as America's Sea in his earlier book called The Gulf. That title earned him a Pulitzer Prize in history. We have links to Jack's work with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. So the eagle, when I grew up, it was uh, kind of big news that, oh, the eagle is an endangered species, and how can America's bird be endangered? Tell us a little background on the struggle that the eagle has had in the last century just to survive. Yeah, you know, Rick, you and I are both baby boomers, so an eagle was a, a rare sight uh, when we were growing up. You grew up in um, growing up in Washington. You may have seen more than what I saw in Florida, which was zero. But uh, after Congress passed the 1940 Bald Eagle Protection Act to uh, bring it back from the brink of extinction, five years later, DDT was released to the general market, uh, and DDT had a devastating impact on all sorts of wildlife, uh, bird life, also fish life. And the bald eagle is a fishing raptor. It, it'll eat uh, birds, it'll eat land animals, but it prefers fish. And so not only did DDT get into the blood system of, of bald eagles and cause them to have nest failures, DDT also robbed them of much of their food sources, as did habitat destruction. Um, as I said earlier, you and I are baby boomers, and the population in the United States was booming, and so was construction and robbing mm. wildlife of much of its habitat. Mm. So by 1963, the nesting population of bald eagles in the lower 48 had reached its nadir. There were fewer than 500 uh, nesting pairs in the lower 48 states. Holy cow, it got down to 500 couples? Yes, that's correct. That's less than a thousand birds. So we actually turned the corner, and now, I mean, yeah, you're right. When I was a kid, when you saw an eagle, that was you'd stop the car, you know. Uh, now it's not that way. That's right, and I think that's one reason why we we really love the bald eagle, and we're so excited to see it. I, I call it a poke the guy in the ribs next to you moment of excitement when you see a bald eagle. Yeah. Um, because you know, ten, fifteen years ago. Uh, we didn't see very many bald eagles, but now we're seeing them all the time. The population has rebounded uh, beyond everybody's expectation, even scientists who worked in bald eagle restoration. And the estimated population continent-wide 
is now 500,000, which oh, is equal my. to the – yes, and that's equal to the estimated population that existed at the time Europeans first arrived in North America. That's 500-fold what it was at its low point, and that's quite a success for a society to actually take a, a concern about something in nature and bring it back to health. That's, that is quite a success story, isn't it? It's a wonderful success story. It's, it's one of the great conservation success stories in American history, I would argue. You know, in bringing the bald eagle back to life, what we did was we cleaned up its habitat. Uh, and, of course, we share that habitat. Uh, we cleaned up the waters around the country, the bays and bayous and rivers and the coastal waters, places where we, we swim and fish. In the 1970s, the beginning of the 1970s, barely one-third of the nation's waters were safe for swimming and fishing. And that was eagle habitat, but also our habitat. You know, we should do more to celebrate those kind of successes, to embolden us, to aim higher, you know, to, to take care of the environment. I agree with you. In fact, you, you just uh, identified my next book, which will be a history of environmental successes. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I think, oh. I think readers get a, a, too, a little bit too much doom and gloom, you know, the, the, the right. grim and the tragic. And there's plenty of grim and tragic in the Bald Eagles right. um, a history with America. But there's also redemption and restoration. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wrote this book in part because I wanted to give readers a break from, from the doom and the gloom. Good and, for and you. To know it the does. success story. You, when you read through it, you just feel good. You're rooting for the eagle as a species, and you're rooting for our society to do something about a problem that was going to lead this beautiful bird to extinction. And, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, but this national bird is kind of handy as a national bird because you can see it all over America, from Alaska all the way to Florida. Where would we look to find the bald eagle? Where you are guaranteed to see bald eagles is in Alaska at the Chilcot Bald Eagle Preserve near Haines. Any time of the year, you can go there and you'll get a good show. But there are other places in the lower 48, Real Foot National Wildlife Refuge in Tennessee is another wonderful place. North Platte National Wildlife Refuge in in Nebraska. Uh, The Klamath River Basin or the Klamath Basin out near you in, in Oregon and California is another wonderful place. And right here in north-central Florida, one of my favorite places to go see eagles is at Loch Lusa Lake um, in Hawthorne, Florida. But also one, one of the funnest places I went to a few years ago was Conowingo Dam in northern Maryland. Uh, not only were there hundreds of eagles, but there were hundreds of photographers there. Wow. Now, is it a seasonal thing? Is it like, hey, it's eagle-watching time? Or can you just go to these places anytime and expect to see a beautiful eagle soaring in the sky? The best time to see eagles is usually from fall through spring. Um, The summertime, they're on the move, they're migrators, and you might not get as lucky during the summertime. Are there certain opportunities to just marvel at their massive nests that these raptors build? Yeah, so nesting season varies across the country, but it's uh, generally from November through uh, late spring. You can see their nests. They are huge nests. They are, they are the largest nest in, in North America. Hmm. And let me tell you, those nests are just beautifully constructed. They're a true wonder. Jack E. Davis teaches history and humanities at the University of Florida. He's the author of The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird. You can find more from Jack on his Twitter postings. By the way, we provide web links to our guests with each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. There's something, well, obviously majestic about eagles soaring high above, 
just to observe an eagle. It's so it's both graceful and powerful. And you've done a lot of thought about about just the physical presence of an eagle. I mean, you wrote about how when you're standing close to an eagle and it takes off, there's just this explosion of wind power, and you get a sense of how strong this bird is. Talk a little bit about just the grace and the power of our national bird. I mean, you described it really nicely. Grace and power really go with this bird in flight. I sort of compare them with, you know, fighter jets or, you know, a top gun. And uh, they are expert maneuvers. They have just an ideal wingspan that allows them to soar, but also to maneuver and tight turns. They are fast. Uh, Somebody here locally has recorded them flying above the water uh, 60, 70 miles an hour. And there is just a a lot of power behind them. Uh, What advice would you give us to know how to look at an eagle when it's soaring around or, or wherever we are? Well, first you want to look for the white head and white tail, which is only common to the adults. They reach their mature years at uh, four or five years. And uh, the young eagles, which are the same size as the adults, when they're first out of the nest, tend to be almost a solid chocolate brown. And and through the years, they start becoming uh, mottled with with white. But what to look for is... It's sometimes it's hard to distinguish them between vultures, and, and the two birds tend to hang out together. They both soar. Mm. You know, Jack, it's interesting you brought up vulture because occasionally I find myself looking at what I think is an eagle and thinking how dramatic and beautiful, and then I realize, uh-oh, is that a vulture? And I just feel kind of yucky that I was admiring a bird I wasn't supposed to admire, and I thought it was an eagle. We do sort of favor the eagle, and there are other raptors up there that do look like an eagle that we could mistaken for an eagle. Yes, that's right. And you, but you're you're allowed to like the vulture and admire <laughs> the vulture. <laughs> I mean, they serve an important purpose. And um, but yes, it's it's easy to uh, mistaken the bald eagle for another bird or vi- or vice versa. Yeah. The bald eagle tends to have a more muscular wing beat than the vulture. Oh, okay. um, the vulture tends to soar more and soar more in circles. Yeah. Um, the bald eagle will, will hunt from the air, but it also uh, hunts from the perch to conserve energy. It'll sit on a branch somewhere. It's got and eagle eyes. You with the oh, those eagles' eyes can spot something a mile to two miles away. There you go. And you see them perched there, and they're not just hanging out; they're using those eyes to get. Th- they're not that lazy bird that <laughs> uh, Ben Franklin accused them of being. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jack E. Davis, and he teaches environmental history and sustainability studies at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Jack won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Gulf: The Making of an American Sea which we'll discuss on a future edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're looking at what Jack's learned about the bald eagle and its role as an American national symbol. His book is The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird. Now, eagles, uh, you wrote about how they are actually considered among the animal world's finest parents. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. You know, uh, we have to give credit to ourselves for bringing the, the bald eagle population back. We, we worked hard, but we also have to give equal credit to, to bald eagles themselves. They have what I refer to as the ideal family values. Um, they mate for life. Uh, they maintain a fidelity to the same nest as long as that nest exists. Uh, if it you know, doesn't come down in a storm or somebody doesn't take the nesting tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they raise their young with such care. Uh, they feed them so well 
that when they uh, leave the nest, they are the same. They are they're typically slightly larger than, than their parents are, maybe a pound heavier in some cases. It's just great to know more about this bird that really is woven into our DNA as citizens of the United States of America. And, you know, it's patriotic, it's stirring, it's a, it's, it kind of reminds us of the nobility and the, and the self-sufficiency of, of us as a, as a nation, and we like to think as individuals, I would imagine. And there is that spiritual dimension to it that kind of uh, is part, it's, it's kind of related to the political joy and pride. Let's finish off just a little bit of talk about the spiritual nature of the eagle. It's it's used for therapy to help people with PTSD. Uh, it's used in Native American religious rituals. It's used when our presidents give a victory speech, as Joe Biden did, talking about on eagle's wings. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that uh, our admiration of this bird, our meaning Americans of this bird, has really evolved to become more spiritual to some people. Again, it's it's a charismatic bird. As you said, it's a patriotic bird. I think it also embodies unification. It's a bird that we can all love and Americans do. But I think we've we've fallen in love with this the species itself to the point that as one cattle rancher who uh, expanded into free-range chicken farming told me he could never herd a bald eagle because there was just something spiritual about mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And a number of people told me that, too. And uh, I can understand that. I mean, it's it's a bird of heaven. It really is. And it's probably for good reason. Joe Biden decided to refer to Psalm 91 on eagle's wings and thinking of the eagle as like an emissary of the divine to help deliver peace between people. And these days, that would mean peace between people of our own country. Jackie Davis, thank you so much for joining us and uh, shining a light on our national bird, the bald eagle. My pleasure. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Casmore Hall, and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeley. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Special thanks to Glenn Richards at WUFT Gainesville for helping out this week. There's more at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.